Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Making Sense of Islam podcast. A few housekeeping points before we begin. Every episode is accompanied by episode notes that highlight everything I've referenced. So people, verses, hadith, etc. They're all in the episode notes, which you can find at makingsenseofislam.com. Most of the episodes are short form, so the notes are few. But when you listen to longer form episodes, the notes are meant to be a resource and an aid. Number two. I would really appreciate it if you could rate the podcast on whatever platform you use and leave a comment, hopefully positive. And number three, every Friday I send out a short email called Coexist Ruminations that shares what I'm working on and reading in my four focus areas. If you'd like to receive these, please sign up by going to makingsenseofislam.com forward slash Friday. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. I hope everyone's doing well. I'm very excited to share with you my recent conversation with Omar Lee. You can find him on Twitter at Omar Lee the Third, U-M-A-R-L-E-E-I-I-I. Also on Facebook, The Unmasked Khutbah. I'll link those in the episode notes. Omar Lee is a writer and an activist from St. Louis, currently living in the Dallas metro area. He has been published in Politico, The Guardian, The Nation, Quartz, and other publications. Omar is also the host of St. Louis Speaks podcast and the Unmasked Khutbah. His books are available on Amazon. I know the name Omar Lee from his book, The Rise and Fall of the Salafi Dawah in America. Uh, A very important read. It's not too long. You could probably finish it in an afternoon. And that name was always sort of in in my head, but... This was the first time that I was able to sit down with him uh, online, of course, and to discuss some of the current issues, abuses that we're facing in the North American Muslim community. Uh, it, it's a very important conversation. It was also a very hard one to have. I know it might be difficult for some people to hear some of these things because these are serious issues, but it's one of those things that we need to address. As they say, we need to face the music and dance I really, really thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I really appreciate his sincerity and his clarity, uh, his unfiltered discussion of these very difficult topics. There's a lot for us to benefit from this conversation. I hope he'll agree for a second and possibly third conversation because there's so many other questions I really couldn't get into. So without further ado, please enjoy this interview and conversation with Omar Lee. Omar, assalamu alaikum. Uh, welcome to the show. Wa alaikum salam. Happy to be with you. Good, good. Thanks for making the time, man. I really appreciate it. No problem. So, look, I, let's just jump right in to the heart of the matter. I mean, there's a lot of things I want to discuss with you, uh, time permitting. But to be fair to your time, um, one of the reasons why I reached out to you, why I really wanted to do this interview, is I wanted to get your take on some of the issues that are facing the North American Muslim community, specifically issues of marriage. Uh, You've really been an outspoken critic for over a decade to a lot of practices, a lot of what you call spiritual abuse. And I really just want to give you this time to talk about it, and I want to tease out the details and see if we can get to some sort of clarity and or solutions to these problems. Okay. So... I began talking about the issue of marriage in the Muslim community, I guess, maybe 15 years ago. Um, And this was 
primarily at that time in reference to issues that were going on uh, in the Salafi Muslim community, predominantly in the Northeast, with a phenomenon known as serial marriage, which were brothers getting married, you know, upwards 20, 30, even 50 times, and um, serial polygamy and uh, kind of the dysfunction that's created in the lives of not just women and children, but the brothers themselves. And obviously, uh, communities couldn't function uh, with that type of situation going on. Uh, and then I began to discuss um, uh, some other issues going on around certain sheikhs, imams, uh, religious communities, not just pertain to Salafi communities, but those more of a Sufi orientation and just your neighborhood masjids and more. So I've kind of been on this for a while um, when it was still very much taboo to discuss in the Muslim community. And now it's, it, it's not quite that taboo. So a lot of people are trying to get to the bottom of it now and just try to get to a better moment as, uh, from a communal standpoint. So Omar, I want to I want to read back to you something that you wrote in your book, uh, "The Rise and Fall of the Salafi Dawa." You say towards the end of the book, "I quote: I say with certainty, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that the Salafi woman is the most oppressed and dysfunctional woman in America." Yes. Uh, end of quote. Can you elaborate on that? I mean that that sent uh, chills down my spine when I read that. Man, that that's a that's a big big statement. Sure. Uh, because I, I don't think there's anything that can be compared to what's going on uh, with Salafi women in America in terms of, uh, and we're not talking about all of them, but we're talking about something that's not isolated either. And so we're talking about people that are getting married at a very young age, in some cases, uh, not even old enough to have a driver's license. We're talking about people, women that are multiple divorcees as teenagers, getting married two, three, four times as teenagers, which are my women that are getting married into polygamous situations, uh, often to middle-aged men as teenagers. Uh, we're talking about women um, that sometimes as girls and sometimes as young women have been dragged to Yemen, to uh, Egypt, to many other situations where they have found themselves in terrible situations. We know that many of these women were trapped in Yemen as the war began. And the Obama administration, unlike many other governments throughout the world, did not evacuate American citizens. So some of them got stranded and had to flee the country. Some of them no longer even had American passports and had children without American documentation. We know that some of the children, particularly some of the young girls involved in the Salafi community have went missing in Yemen, went missing in Egypt, et cetera. Uh, you know, we, we have a situation uh, particularly in the city of Philadelphia, where we have in the Southern community, polygamy is common. Uh, and it's often the case where a brother will have two or three wives uh, with no job or no means of employment himself. The women will be working or you know, getting some form of aid from the government. So on a communal level, I really don't think there's any other community with a, with a divorce rate this high and with women doing as... as, as as poorly within religious communities as there is in the Salafi community. And we could also talk about the homeschooling situation where many of the girls that are growing up in this are homeschooled uh, from a young age 
uh, not by parents that are educated themselves, but by parents who are high school dropouts themselves, who are barely literate themselves. So we're talking about kids that never had a fighting chance to uh, succeed in the society. So it's interesting. I mean, when you study uh, Islamic law, uh, like I did, and you get into the details, sometimes when you talk about polygamy, it's usually presented legally as a solution. I mean, in the abstract theoretical uh, discussion. But in this case, it's it's almost like you're saying it's the problem. In other words, it, it doesn't seem that polygamy... I mean, keep keep to one side, park for one, for one minute, whether it's legal in the American context, because, you know, bigamy is illegal. But just from the Islamic context, it sounds to me, and, and tell me if this is... I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Tell me if this is correct, that it is the source of the problem. It isn't solving any problems. It's a source of many problems. I don't think it's the only problem. I mean, it's 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 an it's an a problematic ecosystem. It's not just uh, Salafis, by the way. As I did further research, some of these negative behaviors began in in you know places like Brooklyn, New York, in the 1960s and 1970s with other Sunni Muslim communities. But um, the Salafis kind of put it on uh, steroids and took it to the next level in in terms of implementation. So yeah, I miss the source. Uh, of many problems if you, you know i've talked to families that were financially struggling you know they had four or five six kids already all of a sudden the husband shows up with a new wife um you know and he's either marginally employed or unemployed uh, obviously polygamy is something that can in no way will be beneficial to that situation i mean we have a lot of people who live in what i call religious fantasy land that they can import uh some kind of fantastical religious thinking um, into America and hope for it for it to succeed. The reality is, you know, polygyny is very, uh, you know, it's not, I mean, it's practiced in the Muslim world, but I mean, in most Muslim countries, it's not widely practiced, right? It's, it's you know, maybe by a very small percentage of the population. Uh, sometimes there are unique circumstances that go into this, such as, you know, uh, widows and, and, and wars and, and things of that nature. But in the American context, you know, we've basically just seen a sexualized pursuit of polygamy. It's just seen as cheap sex. Um, a lot of times that polygamous marriage only lasts a week, two weeks, three weeks, a month uh, until he's got his rocks off. Uh, and then, you know, he pr pronounces a divorce and then we'll go on to move on to the next one. Uh, many times he's left a baby and that woman, you know, may be pregnant or whatnot. So we're talking about something that the dysfunctionality is baked in the cake. So it's 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 a problem, but you've also uncovered recently like another layer to that problem, which is, you know, what, what is being termed as spiritual abuse. In, in other yes. words, so by certain leaders, and, and it's not, my goal here is not to get into names and things like that, but we're just right, trying right, to, right. We, we just want to understand the problem and, and, you know, shed light on it, is that, people are using positions of, you know, spiritual or religious leadership. You know, I'm, I'm the sheikh, so therefore, you know, my multiple marriages are holy, you know, so, you, you know, you, you have right. things like that. So it depends on the community. For example, in all fairness to these Salafi communities, which are predominantly African-American in places like the Germantown neighborhood of Philadelphia and in New, New Jersey, you know, uh, in Washington, D.C., Baltimore, et cetera, uh, polygamy was open. People openly had two wives, openly had three wives. Uh, women were openly seeking polygamy, openly seeking hijra, et cetera. 
um, th there was no secret. Uh, it was no shame associated with the practice. What you've seen come out of the West Coast and some other communities that many of them having a, a more of a, a Sufi orientation, but even not just Sufi, but kind of like this hipster, modern, Muslim, cool, you know, kind of like sipping latte, eating tofu, you know, drinking the kale smoothies and eating the avocado toast type of thing. Uh, their thing is, you know, because they're moving in mainstream white America and because they're moving in socially liberal circles and polygamy is not cool in these circles and polygamy is frowned upon in these circles, uh, it has to be hidden. We're in a predominantly African-American Southern community in Philadelphia who is not seeking acceptance from the white mainstream, nor has proximity to the white mainstream, then they can openly practice polygamy. But you know, when you're in places like the Bay Area or these other kind of hipster-dominated areas, and you want to sit on academic panels and you want to, you know, you want to sip coffee. Uh, with members of the intelligentsia, then if you want to pursue polygamy, it has to be secret. And the nature of a secret relationship is it's, also, it's often negative in nature. In other words, a tryst, a sexual fling. We're going to, uh, you, know, I, you know, we're going to hook up, but it has to be secret. It can't be known. So what we've seen is imams and sheikhs keeping women on the side as their secret second wives, or sometimes engaging in muta, you know, in temporary marriages, uh, even though they're not of a uh, of a methab that, you know, has sanctioned this practice. And so that is kind of the the new uh, flavor of polygyny we see in America today. And would you would it be fair to say that that kind of secrecy makes it in in a way worse, I guess, than in the in the Salafi communities that you've mentioned where it's open. I guess in this case, it's secret. So it's sort of, I mean, even saying the word secret, it's sort of like oxymoron. How is a marriage secret? I mean, it's supposed to right. be, you know, the basic part of the Sharia contract of marriage is that it's public, uh, which is why you have witnesses. Well, look, it, it goes into all this other dysfunctionality in, in, in going on in the Muslim community. With this social media culture mixed with the celebrity imam culture, first of all, social media, a lot of men and women are talking to each other. There's a lot of undercover dating going on. There's a lot of brothers going to meet Muslim families um, under the premise that I just met this woman when they probably been talking for years and probably been meeting for years and hanging out for years. So social media and the DMs have really changed a lot of the, the norms in the Muslim community. So instead of being transparent, and addressing this like, hey, we're in a new technological reality. Hey, we're in a new social place in America. And having that hard heart-to-heart -heart conversation with parents and families, like, look, you know, we're not growing up steeped in Punjabi culture, or we're not, you know, growing up, you know, steeped in Pashtu culture. We're growing up in America, and we, you know, we're, we're developing different norms. We're going to try to stay within the Sharia and keep our Muslim identity, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but it's going to be difficult just for to replicate the same patterns of dating and I'm not dating, but of meeting, et cetera, uh, that, that you did over there. Instead of those difficult conversations, you have this utter secrecy going on. Sometimes it's harmless. Other times it's 
years long or weeks long or days long sexual fling, et cetera. And so there's this secrecy going on. And then sometimes they'll say, okay, let's make this sex halal. We make this sex halal by having a couple of my buddies come over. We're going to say some words in Arabic. And, um, and then we're going to head to the Motel 6 and get it in, you know. So in that respect, it's kind of worse, but it's really hard to say which one is worse, you know, because in that respect, uh, it would be because of all the secrecy uh, and women being often uh, threatened to, to stay quiet, shamed to stay quiet, bullied. But at the same time, uh, these communities tend to be uh, of an upper um, socioeconomic bracket. And, uh, and and when you're of a higher socioeconomic impact uh, income, you can kind of uh, deal with some bad decisions e more easy. For example, uh, if you make life mistakes and you're already on a thin margin as far as housing, as far as healthcare, as far as transportation, as far as employment is concerned, you don't have a lot of room for error. So that little setback may be, may, may be able to just cripple you in your life. Whereas if you have a little bit of a cushion from your family, maybe you can uh, take the blow a little easier, you know, not so hard. So Omar, let me, let me ask you this. So going back to that quote of yours about the, the Salafi woman in America being the most abused person, et cetera, if you look at this other type, you, you know, you, you, and I want to get back to this uh, latte sipping avocado toast. I mean, I have a lot, I have a lot of, I have, a, I have a beautiful quote of yours that I want to, uh, you know, segue with. But we'll just for we'll park that for a second. This other type, the 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 more uh, elite you're you're calling them, you know, well off, etc. Uh, and the the polygamy, the secret marriages, the secrecy, etc. It's just sort of a veneer excuse to have sex. But you're also saying in a lot of your public pronouncements and the videos that I was watching uh, in recent weeks, you're also using the word abuse. And I, I would, it would really be helpful for me. I just want to get a little bit more from you about where is the abuse? Can you walk us through how does that unwind? Like how does that tryst unwind? How does that relationship unwind? I'll give you two situations that have come to my attention in the last few days. When you get a teenage Muslim girl, a teenage woman, come to a masjid or institute, say I'm interested in the slab, right? And the imam immediately takes her to, um, uh, to become his sex partner, okay? That spiritual abuse, using your position as an imam to get sex, to get unlawful sex in the slab. Uh, we ha that's number one. Number two, a sheikh who, who is engaged in secret marriages and telling women, you don't need the wali to, uh, or you, didn't, you don't need a wakil to marry me because since I'm your teacher, I'm like your spiritual father. And I can act as the groom and the wakil all is one. That's spiritual abuse. When you're using your entire religious institute, your foundation, your masjid, whatever, uh, with the goal of entrapping as many women as possible who are weak or vulnerable, maybe going through divorces, maybe coming to you for counseling uh, about their family situation or their life, using that to get secret marriages or zinna, that's spiritual abuse. And of course, we had the situation here uh, in Dallas, Texas, where 
an imam, befriended a young fam a family with a young girl in there, befriended them for years. And uh, when that girl turned 18, he took her to the Motel 6 and made Zedna with her. Uh, that spiritual abuse used his position as a man, imam clearly to uh, prey on a, on a weak and vulnerable member of the community. Now, some people are telling me, oh, well, it's not spiritual abuse to women. You know, they're not, uh, you know, they're not, uh, what, is, what do they say, in the jungles of Afghanistan or the, uh, the mountains of Mauritania. The, these women are not, you know, these are strong American women. You can't bully them, et cetera. Which, of course, um, spiritual abuse and sex abuse is a global phenomenon. It can happen in America. can happen in any of these other places. But, you know, there's degrees, you know, there are, you know, there are many times when it's a, it's a very, um, it's a very uh, um, consensual sexual relationship. It's a very consensual financial relationship because spiritual abuse is not just sexual, but often involves financial um, uh, abuse of men and women. But there's a line where it crosses, where it becomes a personal issue, which is okay, this person was not faithful to the marriage. This person made Zenda, where it's, it's, you know, it's not the job um, of a journalist or a writer to expose them. But when it's a, a communal issue, when they're using their position of authority uh, to prey on women who are made to feel then ashamed uh, and unsafe, then it becomes a communal issue. So about this issue of, of, of pushback that you've gotten, not that I want to jump in uh, to that conversation, but I think it's important, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, to make a distinction between the concept of abuse and it's a consensual relationship. In other words, you're not saying that the, relation, that the, the, the interaction is not consensual. You're simply saying that one person abused their position in that relationship to bring the other person along. Yeah, it's similar to a CEO at a company or or you know, president of a company having a, uh, or a doctor having a sexual relationship with either a client or someone that works under, under them. There's a power imbalance. And because of that power imbalance, um, there often cannot be an ethical sexual relationship. For example, the CEO of McDonald's just had to resign over this same issue. You know, if you're gonna run a professional organization, you can run a professional masjid uh, you can't be banging members on the down low. That's just not professional behavior. You know, just, you know, take the Sharia and the Islamic norms out of it. It's not professional behavior to be having sex with congregants. And, you know, if, if you're at a church with a, a board, you know, not, a, you know, you have kind of two types of churches. Just some churches where it's a dictatorship, you know, it's like a one man show, the, the preachers run everything. But if you have one for a board, you know, you couldn't really find any church in America that wouldn't fire a preacher for having sex with the congregant, right? So, you know, this is just demanding um, professional norms in the Muslim community. I mean, it's not just in terms of sex, but like, you know, hey, you know, we're in America, you can't, you can't beat the hell out of the kids, uh, you know, because they got this eye wrong, okay? You know, you, you can tell me, well, this is how we did it in you know, Pakistan or whatever, but uh, uh, these are not the norms here, you know. So it's, it's, it's demanding accountability and professionalism uh, from our houses of worship. So I want to use that, this concept of a norm to pivot, Omar, just a little bit. So when I, when I heard 
uh, a lot of this stuff and 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 when I particularly when I saw a lot of your videos um I was really shocked uh, I'm still really really shocked but when I you know I spent uh, about 20 years of my life trying to learn the deen to trying to learn Islam spent a lot of time in in many countries mostly Egypt where I studied al-Azhar and when you say when you tell me the sentence you know the imam you know, lured this girl, like sleeping with this girl and this and that. I'm like, well, that's not, that's not what an imam <laughs> does. I mean, those are not the people that I studied with. The people that I studied with were very respectable, you know, public people, uh, professors, uh, muftis uh, with technical <laughs> skills. And in a way, they're part of a community of professionals. You can look at it as like a community of professionals. And were, were one of them to do something that egregious, they would essentially be kicked out of that community of professionals for conduct unbecoming so well, keep in mind in america the imam has kind of a different role in many places um that the masjid is the center of muslim life here in a way that it is not in in muslim countries you know what i'm trying to say so the imam is looked at for everything here so people go to the imam for marriage advice they go to him for burial. They go to him for, you know, almost anything you can think of. At some of the bigger masjids, they have more staff. They can kind of cater to some of these areas. Um, and that opens the door for blessings. It also opens the door for temptation and lack of professionalism. Um, and because of this thing in the Muslim community to cover your brother's sins, which is almost always the brother uh, people are, are really seldom interested in covering the sins of women. Uh, there's a hypocrisy going on here. And so when they cover the sins of the brother, uh, what happens is the brother just moves on to the next masjid or moves on to the next batch of victims. Uh, if, you if you read the report from the organization Face, they just had a situation in Arizona, same thing happened. Um, you know, problems happened in one masjid, he moved on to the next. Same thing happened here in Dallas. Problem one message, moved on to the next. Problem, same thing happened in Northern Virginia, where in this case, uh, abuse of children was uncovered, sexual abuse, with the masjid aggressively campaigning to keep it secret because they're worried about the reputation of the brother, worried about the fundraising of the masjid, worried about the reputation of the masjid, worried about Islamophobia, community image, et cetera. So they pressure the family not to go forward. And that individual is simply able to walk away and go on to the next masjid and probably the next group of victims. On top of all this, you have the anti-Muslim climate, the climate of Islamophobia here, where um, Muslims can be pressured, hey, you don't want to feed the Islamophobes. You don't want to give the Islamophobes ammunition uh, against Muslims. And uh, unfortunately, that's another tool that's very uh, affected, effective in silencing victims. Uh, we know that sometimes these imams will reach out to other community members and they'll pressure people saying, hey, you know, this is a good brother, you know, cover his sins, you know, et cetera. Uh, and this is obviously a, a, an abuse of this principle. No, no, I mean, I got you. I mean, I, I am a part-time imam in, in a mosque in, in Potomac, Maryland. So, I mean, I know people come for all sorts of things. But what I was trying to get at was, don't you think, or is there a way for us to either standardize the requirements for somebody to be a imam to redefine that? Is there a way to, in your opinion, to 
let other mosques know because you know in Surah Al Hujurat, God also says, "In If you know if a crooked person comes, you gotta let people know because if you don't, then everyone else is gonna fall, you know, trapped to this person. So yeah, we we, we cover our brother and sister's sin when it's done in private, and you know, I only saw it so I can keep their dignity and I can help them out of it. But if I have somebody who's you know uh, a serial criminal. Uh, and known to abuse children. This happened in our mosque. There's somebody that came to our mosque who was known to abuse children sexually. Uh, and the board took me aside and just, you know, was warning me because he was trying to get cozy with me uh, and warned me. And then, you know, we were like, okay, alhamdulillah, we were able to take care of it in a, in a diplomatic way. And we made him know that, you know, his, his presence is not welcome in the mosque, etc. So I, I think that I agree with you. There is hypocrisy. Uh, I have sons and daughters. I see the hypocrisy in in the way Arabs, because my background is Arab, in which Arabs uh, raise sons and daughters. Uh, it, it's offensive. But do you think there's some way that we can standardize the, these requirements or these positions or redefine them? I don't think it's an issue of requirements because I think that, you know, obviously different masses are at different economic levels and sizes. And people can be abusive no matter their level of education right so they could come from i mean some of these individuals in question are of a very high you know level of education i mean some of them are not but it's a mixed bag um i think the requirements issue is not a big thing i think what what's important is a standard setting up a standard of what is accepted and what is not accepted and then an enforcement mechanism and then if something comes up, then you could have a, a, a third party investigation. And a lot of these matches are like the police department, you know, if, you know, in these shooting uh, cases, they say, okay, well, we'll investigate ourselves and oh, we've investigated ourselves and we've found out we didn't do anything wrong. Um, that's not acceptable. Um, you know, whenever there is an, an a, a allegation, there needs to be a third party to look at that. I mean, it only has to go public if, if need be, but you have to have someone coming from the outside to look at it because in the cases of these masks, it's, it's, it's almost always uh, friends investigating friends and you know they, they're gonna tend to look the other way. So um, that's what I think. Um, so related to that, Omar, you, you've, you've also spoken a lot about uh, people that are unmasked uh, how yes. mosques are no longer friendly for a lot of people. People don't find comfort in the mosque, etc. One of my concerns with that, and, and I and I, I'm saying this with all respect. I'm not trying to. I mean, it's a little bit of a pushback, but I'm saying this, to, you know, to stimulate our conversation. You know, okay, there's there's a lot of bad example. I mean, the things that you've just stated that that, that we're recording now, and the things that you probably haven't stated that you know are are probably 99% more than what you've stated. You know, they're very troublesome, and it's very easy for somebody to take from all of this, okay, anybody in a position, a religious or spiritual position, is not to be trusted, the mosque is not to be trusted, it's misogynist, it's just patriarchal, etc. So we don't need all of these institutions, we don't need all of this brick and mortar, we don't need the community. And I, I see that that's not necessarily a solution, I, I see that as a reaction, and I'm concerned about the direction that that's going. So I, I would like to get your thoughts about unmasked uh, and uh, you know what you, to respond to what I just said, of course. But just the the the, it, the 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 fear that we will lose our institutions, as you said, the mosque in this country is a very essential part of our spiritual life as Muslims. Well, I, I'll first state that I am unmasked myself. Uh, that's why I've 
started to unmask Koopa on on Facebook, you know, which at last count had over 6,000 views. So I think that it does have uh, some appeal. I think that um, obviously the community needs Massage to survive. I mean, the community cannot function without, you know, maybe not, you know, some could close, but you need obviously some massage to stay open. Um, but I think that the reality is a lot of people are unmasked. And we have to start from that reality. A lot of people, for whatever reason, and there are many, some of them are rooted in in gender, women not wanting to go to a place where they're not feeling appreciated. Some of them are viewed uh, are, uh, through race and ethnicity, people not feeling accepted at their local message due to issues of race and ethnicity. Some of them are theological disputes, some of them issues with transportation, some of them issues with disability, some are with level of practice, people just not feeling like going to the message. So there's a lot of people that are unmasked. And I think that the community can't ignore them. You know what I'm trying to say? The community has to uh, have a message for them, has to have places for them. That's why I like the idea of the third spaces. I'm not against third spaces. I think they have to be more professionally ran. I don't think they could, you know, I think there's been some mistakes made, but the idea of third spaces in and of itself, I think is a good idea. But uh, uh, it, it has to be a, uh, you know, you know, tweaked, obviously, but, you know, some people are, it's not a matter of will they be, they are turned off from all religious authority and all imams and chicks. So, you know, you have to uh, come at them where they are. And I think one of the great things, like I have a group of friends in St. Louis doing right now, uh, they have a group of brothers, they meet every Thursday, it's 10 brothers and they, they bring food and, you know, they read Quran and, and, it's a beautiful thing. And I believe that uh, you're going to see more and more places like this of Muslim brothers, Muslim sisters, brothers and sisters getting together and saying, we don't feel at home in the masjid. We're going to commune as Muslims here. We're going to eat food together. We're going to study together. We're going to read together. We're going to break our fast together, et cetera. But I think at the end of the day, most of these people, including myself, would love to have a masjid close by where they would feel welcomed at and 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 want to attend, uh, they just don't exist uh, at the moment for many of us in the places that we live. So I, I agree with you. I, I think statistically, you're right. Most people are unmasked. Um, I mean, our regular prayer services will have like a couple hundred people, and then when we have Eid, you know, we're, we're pulling in like two, three thousand. Uh, so I, I mean, I know that people just they're unmasked. They're either busy or <laughs> You know, let's be honest, a lot of our mosques sucks. Uh, you know, I've been, I, I admit that as well. Um, my, own, my concern is, you know, even, even just now you're saying, okay, well, you know, in St. Louis, the brothers are getting together. They're creating a third space. But eventually that third space, there's, it's going to be a space, right? It's going to be a place where there's human dynamic at play. Well, just, just in fairness, these brothers are being at the masjid, so yeah. No, no, I understand. I mean, I, I, that's that's great. You know, we need to find we need to find comfort, spiritual comfort, where we can find it. What, what I just meant to say is that those spaces will eventually become institutions, if they continue long enough. And we're gonna For be sure. back. We're gonna be back to the same problem where, it's like it's like a human problem. It's a, it's the problem of our own soul, our own heart. That it seems that we're just not living up to the standards that we're supposed to living up to. 
And I think that that needs to be addressed fundamentally. It's not just the, the spaces. Um, but listen, is it, can, we, can we pivot to another topic? Are you, are you okay with that? Sure. Sure. Okay, so another one of your <laughs> beautiful quotes, man. This is this is a wonderful quote. Uh, just to go back to what you were talking about, uh, you 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 uh, reminded me with this avocado toast. So you okay. said about that type of Islam, uh, you say, "quote It is an Islam with no teeth, no calling to the truth, only a mushy middle that doesn't really stand for anything against anything." End of quote. Right. So. And the reason I the reason I wanted to I, I picked that I mean other than it's it's wonderfully phrased but the reason I picked that quote is one of your themes is that uh, Salafi the Salafi Dawah in America is primarily underprivileged uh, economically you know Muslims and the more I don't know what the right word is but the bougie slash traditional slash Sufi Islam is more elite. Whereas in the Muslim world, it's almost the opposite. For sure. And, 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 and let me just throw in a little thing. You're in the D.C. metro, and the D.C. metro things are even a little different there because you have the phenomenon of all the swamp creatures there, you know, the people that <laughs> lobby and political people, the, you know. Oh, yes. Members. Oh, yes. I know. Very familiar with those, those creatures. <laughs> right, 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 right. So can you, I want you to speak, a little bit about that um, because that's concerning. I mean, Islam with no teeth that doesn't stand for anything. I mean, I don't think that that's how the prophet would have, you know, if he was designing a billboard, that's what he would have said about his message, right? No teeth don't stand for anything. So we go back in history, post, I mean, pre 9-11, the Muslim community in America was a very assertive and aggressive community. You know, um, it was controversial to talk about voting in the Muslim community uh, because the political climate in the Muslim community in America was very Islamist. You know, you would go to the masjid and they were talking about, you know, the Shabab in Chechnya and, and, and Bosnia and whatever conflict was going on. And, you know, they'd speak of politics in the Muslim world as, you know, solely about trying to establish Islamic states and Sharia governance, et cetera. And, you know, you you did not have a progressive movement that was anything more than a tiny, tiny fringe within the Muslim community. And, and the Islam was very assertive. Dawah was very assertive. Dawah was going on everywhere. Inner city Dawah in particular. And Muslims were very aggressive. And there was kind of this confidence within Muslims that this religion is growing and and we have something superior to that of the societal norm in America. And what you saw post 9-11 was many people flee the country, many people go to jail, and you saw politically a hard left turn to where now it's almost synonymous with being a Muslim that you're on the left politically. And with the young Muslims, often on the very far left. And it is, um, there is no political or social or cultural critique that you'll find from many Muslims publicly to, to these days that is rooted in Islamic understanding. It is basically rooted in the critiques within the Western society, right? So, you know, you're taking sides 
within these critiques. You have writers that you like, you have thinkers that you like. You know, no one is quoting, you know, Abdullah Azam or Safar Hawali or, you know, Muhammad Abdul or, you know, like you would hear in the 90s. And so it's just a totally different climate. Now, I look back nostalgically to the 90s, studying with Sheikh Ali Tamimi, studying with Imam Anwar Awliki, studying with Sheikh Abdul Rahman Basir. I look back at those times nostalgically because socially they were a great time. Muslims were very confident. We didn't have the feds breathing down our butts. We didn't have, uh, you know, all this climb to suspicion. Brotherhood was much greater. You'd go to a masjid you never been to before. People would hug you and greet you, invite you out to dinner. Now you go to the masjid, people don't even give you salams. They don't even look at you in the eye. There's a very cold feeling in the masjid now. So I look back with all that nostalgia, but I also understand that we were in many respects, crazy at the same time. You know, I mean, we're, you know, we were, you know, a little too far to the extreme. We were uh, uh, unrealistic. I mean, Imam Zaid Shakir used to talk about, you know, um, you know, voting is a sign of nifak. Our mission is to establish a dollar to Islam in America. You know, and Zaid used to talk about the dog breath kafir. He had that uh, expression. No imams talk like that now. And, you know, looking back, it wasn't helpful. But, uh, you know, and, and, and brothers would sit around and say, yeah, when America's an Islamic state, you'll be the wazir of Missouri and you'll be the wazir of Kansas. And, and then we're going to spread the jihad into Brazil and Puerto Rico, you know, for obvious reasons. Uh, you know, uh, Brazil and Puerto Rico. I think the men this thing know what I'm talking about. And... Um, Obviously, that kind of climate is non-existent today. But many of my generation have think the pendulum has swung a little too far in the other direction. You know, we don't have to be talking about, uh, you know, uh, establishing the Islamic State on the Potomac, but, uh, you know, we could offer some critique to the society. We could offer something from the Islamic tradition that would be, um, you know, a, a critique and not just joining the left or joining the right, and we had this Ak right thing now, which are it's very troubling to me. But uh, the unique Muslim perspective is really absent today. So I, I want to get to the the Salafi Dawa stuff in a minute. You, you you reminded me of some other beautiful quotes I want to pull out. But just just on the where we are now, I mean, look, a lot of the a lot of the people that you mentioned, um, you know, going back to the nineties. Just to be blunt, I would say are the problem. Uh, I mean, that type of extreme, non-grounded, non-grounded. I mean, from a scholarly and academic. Me now critiquing them academically and scholarly from a, you know Sharia yeah. point of view. I mean, for sure, Anwar, for sure. You know that that that's the problem. I mean, that's just equally as crazy as as me. You know, the the latte uh, avocado. Right. To Yo, bro, what's wrong with avocado toast? By the way, man, avocado toast not bad. <laughs> Well, but, I've never eaten avocado toast. <laughs> Look, man, if I'm going out for breakfast, I got one or two things. I want the one a donut, number one. <laughs> or number two, I want some pancakes with some scrambled eggs with American cheese in it and some halal beef bacon or, or beef sausages. All right. I, I know I know a spot. Inshallah, when you come to DC, I'll take you out. We'll have the we'll have a proper proper American Islamic breakfast. Inshallah. But I agree with you. I mean, I don't feel that my Islam has no teeth and stands for nothing. Uh, but at the same time, I don't feel 
that my job every Friday on the mimbar is to provide critique. I, I feel what I'm I supposed what to do is to provide guidance. And There's to, a masjid in the DMV, I guess about 30, 40 minute drive from you. They used to call masjid siyasa. And uh, they said, if, if you missed out on the news, just go to the message. <laughs> I think I know what you're talking about. I, yes. I, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure you know 100% what message I'm talking about. And, you know, a lot of political figures would come there and talk. And a lot of people just didn't like it. Like, they, they didn't want to come. You know, you know, I understand a critique now. And then I loved it. But, you know, I understand a critique now. A lot of people, they didn't want to come to the message for a, a political lecture, you know. Which, in retrospect, is just one political perspective of the Muslim community. I mean, that political perspective is rooted in the, in the Muslim Brotherhood. That's just one political perspective. And reality is, despite what we were told that you know ninety percent of the people in Egypt and these other countries are dying to to be ruled by the Iqwan Muslimin, that's just one political perspective, and not not the not necessarily that popular of a political perspective. You know, it's not, you know, I mean, uh, I mean, look in Tunisia, it's, it's, look in Libya. I mean, they've done fairly well, but it's, uh, I mean, it's not the, you know, it's not the 90% that, you know, that they were promoting, uh, et cetera. Um, I agree there needs to be some balance. Um, and some of those, I mean, as much as I love Sheikh Ali Tamimi, when I listen to his lectures now, some of them are very beneficial, but, um, you know, some of them are, uh, uh, you know, I, I mean, if I would hear somebody saying today, I would say they're nuts. Quite frankly, yeah, you know, they're just kind of extreme and out there. So on the on the politics, I mean, I would go even one step further, and I would say I don't think Islam belongs in politics in partisan politics at all. In mm -hmm. other words, I won't accept uh, to endorse a party. Because in my community, you know, people are looking to me as the imam or as a scholar in residence. So, you know, I'm supposed to be that figure for them. So I wouldn't endorse a political party uh, or tell them who I voted for or even encourage them to vote for somebody or versus somebody else, even if they're a Muslim candidate, because I don't believe that that's where religion belongs. I think I think that religion is above it's me, it's a meta issue. It's above all of that. And people start becoming divided. I mean, I remember after the election, after Trump was elected, you know, people thought that we were going to get like rounded up, and they were very emotional. And and um, uh, and I think part of the part of that elite that you're talking about, that you know, high end bougie type of Islam that has no teeth. I think one of the problem, my critique, is that they are actually in a political uh, tunnel, within a certain political perspective as you said, in the left or the far left. And I think that's where the danger is because that's just, that's simply a reaction to the type of Ikhwan Islam, which is Islam in politics, but in another direction. Well, so, well, okay. So people of my generation remember when Ikhwan basically had a monopoly over political discourse in Muslims of America. I mean, if you look at the conventions, you look at the Masajid, they pretty much had a monopoly and the only people not really on the Ikhwan line were some very small immigrant and Sufi misadjured and the Salafis, who basically viewed the Ikhwan as modernist and you know sellouts, et cetera, right? So the um, today the progressive left has come that same monopoly within the Muslim community. Now, before I say this, I don't want people to think I'm in the arc right because I'm deeply troubled 
even way more trouble than I am by certain aspects of the progressives by this right this kind of uh you know like I just saw a guy on Twitter this morning he's like this white supremacist Muslim you know I never thought I would see that so Omar I, let me just cut you off for a second can you define the ah right because it's just such a new term I don't think many yeah. people are gonna understand it right was invented by a guy I can't remember his name he's like this um, European uh, Islamic studies guy um, his name will come to me later uh, basically there's a group of Muslims who have become disenchanted with the progressive movement in the Muslim community, and they've doubled down on conservatism. They're not Islamist in orientation. They tend to be of a traditional, traditionalist slash Sufi um, orientation, many of them even quietist, but they offer strong critique culturally uh, to Muslims in America. They're very um, anti-feminist, very uh, anti-LGBT, a very anti-democratic uh, party, um, anti-critical race theory, uh, and many of them are anti-black. Like this guy this morning is flat-out anti-black, just flat-out racist. And most of them are not like that. Most of them are not like that, but this particular person was. But they kind of get on that edge and they often sound a lot like the, um, the um, what's this guy, Jordan Peterson's or Richard Spencer's. They often sound a lot like uh, that whole crowd in their critique of progressivism and the left. And there's a big gender divide because these are overwhelmingly dudes. And uh, we've seen the, you know, what they call the woke jabbies, you know, the, the, uh, <laughs> the overwhelmingly, uh, uh, at least of the public face of, Young Muslim women is very progressive in this country, obviously led by uh, figures such as Ilhan Omar, who's in the United States Congress. Okay, so that's the definition. So sorry. So getting back to what you were saying about, I mean, everything that you just said only confirms for me that this is you know, history repeating itself. Here, here's a, a portion of our community taking the religion and plugging it into some sort of political paradigm. Uh, which is not the way it's supposed to be. I mean, that's not what Islam is about. I think in retrospect, so an Egyptian guy told me years ago, he was one of the first anti-Ikwani Egyptians I met. And he said, basically, look, um, just imagine you're Egyptian, you're religious, you 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 love Allah, you love his messenger, you, you love to study the religion, you love the masajid, but you're afraid to let your beard grow. You're afraid to show your religion. Why are you afraid to show your religion? Because you don't want to be associated with Iqwan Muslimi. And you're not associated with Iqwan Muslimi. And he said, you have to understand there has to be spaces for people. They're religious. They love religion. But they're not, being, they're not trying to be a part of this political program to establish an Islamic state or to, to establish Khilafah or all these other concepts. They're just trying to be good Muslims. And, um, you know, as I've studied, and um, not as much as you have, but, you know, you've learned that some of these concepts, which we were led to believe were a part of Yemen, such as establishing Khilafah, et cetera, you know, these are all subjective concepts, you know. Some of these are modern concepts. They're not even rooted in, you know, Islamic tradition. So to say someone is a bad Muslim or, 
or to ostracize them because they don't want to be part of your political program, it can actually drive people away from religion. Because some people nowadays feel they have two choices. You, you can become, in the, you know, in the Muslim countries, you can be an Islamist or you can be an anti-Islamist and very anti-religion. Or in America, you can be a, uh, a Muslim SJW woke type, or you can just be a sellout that doesn't want anything to do with Islam. So uh, I, 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 I understand what you're saying, that when you mix the politics and religion too heavily, then these problems can, can, uh, can occur. So what you just said, you know, about that guy, I mean, I was that guy. I know I know, because I'm Egyptian-American. I know what that's like. Uh, when I went to go study, my parents were freaking out um, because, what do you, you know, there's this assumption that you must be an Ikhwan at that time. I mean, now, of course, a lot of things that that's changed in Egypt, but in this in America, in this context, you know, I think of I think of like my children. I think of my my teen teenage you know year old my teenage son. Uh, he just wants to go to the mosque to to do his thing. You know, memorize a little bit of Quran, pray. Maybe there's a celebration, meet up with friends. You know, shoot shoot some hoops. That's that's about it. You know, he, he doesn't want to hear about some kind of political you know meta political struggle or feel. That you know, he probably doesn't even care. He's too young to care about these po political stuff. And I always say, look, if you you should feel uh, I I have to be as welcoming to a congregant wearing a maga hat as you know I am to somebody wearing like I feel the burn or something like that, because they're Muslim. Let me this. So in this climate um, today, you know, and I got to be honest, I don't know any Trump. I actually do not know personally any Trump supporters. But let's just throw out a, a theoretical. A Trump supporter comes to the masjid, you know. Now, um, a MAGA hat is one thing that may be provocative. Okay, well, let's just say that he's, you know, a, a known Trump supporter. Say he has a Trump bumper sticker or something like that. Um, there will be people at the masjid triggered. How do you deal with that as an imam? Well, I'm like you. It's theoretical. I, 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 you're right. I don't know. But I'll give you a real story where there's an, there's an elderly gentleman who reached out to me. Um, he's married, his wife is, I think, of German you know, origin. Uh, he's really old. And he's like, look, I need you to promise me that when I die, you will wash me, uh, shroud me, pray over me, and bury me. I said, of course. You know, uncle, I mean, this is all by phone and email. And then like, you know, two, three months into the relationship, he's like, I, 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 I want you to promise. He keeps repeating the same thing. I was like, uncle, you know, what's the big deal? Of course, this is my duty. He's like, but, but I'm Shia. I said, it doesn't matter. You're, you're Muslim. I mean, I, I told you I will, I will do this. And I have a piece of paper with this information. I told my wife and my kids, I was like, God forbid, if anything happens to me, you have to pass this on to somebody else that can do this because I have to cater to him. I mean, that's an, obli it's an obligation that I have from the Sharia point of view to do that for this man. So would I not do that for somebody who's um, you know, a, a Trump supporter, who's a Muslim? No, I would. But to go more real to your example, the, the bumper sticker or whatever, I would say, look, you know, Ahlan was Sahlan in the mosque, but we do not talk partisan politics in the mosque. And people have tried to do that. I said, look, that, there's no, I'm, I, you know, I'm the, the, the law in that. There is no partisan politics in the mosque. You want to talk about that? You go outside the mosque, go down to Starbucks. Uh, but can you be a young Muslim on campus today? a young Muslim, like in the Muslim social circles, you know, circles, and be like, nah, I'm just really not feeling the whole, you know, Linda Sarsour type of activism. Not me. 
you know, just not me. Not 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 saying there's anything wrong with it. Just saying you know you're not feeling it. Is that person made to feel like they're not a good Muslim because they're not accepting that particular? No, I think you're right. I think in certain MSAs or certain campuses, they would be made to feel that they're not good Muslims, and that's precisely my point. Which is why it's very dangerous that we plug Islam into that because religion is supposed to be a a, a, a more a more a larger binding issue than it's like. Uh, us being American citizens, it doesn't matter what state we live in or what you know sports teams we like, or maybe we don't like sport. You like sports, I don't like sports. Whatever the case, we're American. It's the same that we're Muslim. So it doesn't. It doesn't. Nothing can, should break that type of identity. But these movements, these political, whatever, whether they're the ak right or the all the way on the left, the, the avocado eating right. toast. The problem, my critique of them is it's destroying that fabric. And that's why I'm very concerned, which is really why I reached out to you in the first place, because I just I, I think we need to air some of this stuff out. For sure. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, there needs to be a climate for that, that where, you know, people don't feel they have to join a political program. But I think there's another thing um, that we have to address, and that is... Um, um, and that, and this is very important, is that People need a climate where they're, um, look, we're in America of blogs, talk radio, social media, where many issues are discussed in a very frank manner. No punches being pulled, right? And then you go in the Muslim community and you have uh, these same issues being discussed in very vague terms. I think we have to find a way where um, um, these things, whether it be sex, whether it be race, whether it be gender, are discussed in a very open and frank way in the Muslim community, you know, by leaders, because if that does not happen, then the political actors will dominate the conversation. So that's that's a very very deep uh, and serious critique, man. I, I I definitely hear you on that. I think that it's sort of like we're burying our heads in the sand, um, and and you're right. And that's that's something that we should definitely act on because I see that there's this political conversation is it's like a cancer. It's just it's just spreading everywhere, and everyone is. It's almost like you're made to feel you have to take some kind of political side. And I think that's very dangerous. It's very dangerous as a as a, a person of faith. I mean, if you're into that stuff individually, that's fine, but don't drag your faith into that. Right. That's my concern. Um, and I say this is probably the most political guy there is. You're like, I, I've been a political activist. I was a frontline Ferguson protester. See, a lot. I had a debate a few days ago, a pretty nasty debate with me, man, out in California. And he was like, "What have you done since the rise and fall?" And the reality is, I've done a lot. I've done a lot more after than I did before, but most of it has been outside of the Muslim space. You know, I've been published in some of the most prestigious publications in America, you know, The Nation, The Guardian, Politico, The Atlantic, et cetera. Uh, all my local St. Louis publications I've been published in. I've been, uh, you know, I played a pivotal role in the Ferguson protest, et cetera, et cetera, the, the protest to remove the Confederate monument from St. Louis. But these were outside of "quote unquote" the Muslim space, right? Yeah. So, so you, you're writing as your you, with your credentials, of Omar Lee, the journalist. 
Right. So for people that only pay attention to the Muslim space or kind of the internal workings of the Muslim community, you know, okay. And if you don't pay attention to the outside world, it may look like I, I haven't been doing anything. But what I deemed is you can be a lot more effective as a citizen, as a citizen in America, as a person in America, you can be a lot more effective and reach a lot more people if you don't limit yourself solely to this Muslim space. If you engage in a wider community, um, if you engage in these struggles just, just as a citizen, not as just you're holding your religious identity card. And what you can then do, um, uh, you know, you can, you know, um, go into the masajid or go into the Muslim community uh, as an individual. And, um, you know, and some people will, you know, will support you or not. But there are many times when I was out in Ferguson getting tear gassed and very tough times um, that I wanted to go to the masjid and I didn't want to talk about anything, you know. I didn't want to talk about what was going on in the streets. I didn't want to talk about politics. I didn't want to talk about, I just wanted a place to relax, hear Quran and hear, uh, you know, some mentioning uh, of Allah. Unfortunately, I didn't often get that because people would say, oh, hey, man, I just seen you on the news, you know, or something like that. But you, but I mean, you're, 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 you're an embodiment of what I'm saying is that, you know, by all means, get involved on the, on the issues. You know, you're a, a long-time resident. Uh, this is your home, your town, your state, uh, your family, your relatives. You you have every reason to to care. But why do you have to do it as like you know super Muslim dawah man in, in the name of Islam? You know. I agree. That's what and I'm I talking did. about. And I did. If you look at, at Ferguson, I didn't do it as super Muslim dawah man. Matter of fact, I didn't mention Islam at all or Muslims at all uh, until. I was repeatedly attacked by Islamophobes, you know, saying I was trying to spread ISIS in Ferguson and you know stuff like that, right? So, so then, I would, yeah. Omar, I want to, I would go one step further, and I would say, for people like me who are known in the local community as uh, imam or whatever the word is, I shouldn't do that because I can't separate that identity. In other words, I don't think any imam in this country should yeah, ever endorse a, a candidate. Position. Sorry, I think I cut you off. You were saying? I said, I said you can't do that because you're the imam of the masjid. It's a different, you have a different role. Yeah, so when I see an imam endorsing a candidate, uh, or a priest, or a rabbi for that matter, I think that is extremely, extremely dangerous and offensive. Because I think that's a form of abuse, or, or disingenuous, you know, using your position in the incorrect, in the incorrect manner. I mean, I remember one time I was with one of my teachers uh, and I asked him, I said, can you go, can I go to the opera? I was like invited to some kind of musical thing. He's like, of course you can go. But he's like, but he's like, I can't go because I'm the mufti mm. uh, of the country. So I can't, you know, I can't go. I mean, after the, I, he's like, before I was the mufti, I would just, you know, not dress in, in my clerical, you know, in my regalia. And I would just go normally wearing a suit or whatever. But he's like, in certain positions, he's like, for example, is it permissible for a man to kiss his wife in the street? This is what he told me. He's like, of course, except the mufti, because he's supposed to be some sort of example. So, I mean, you know, that's stuff that we have in our tradition. We can adapt it to, to our situation. But I mean, I think, you know, I think you understand what I'm trying to say. I'm not big into PDA anyway, by the way. <laughs> okay, well, that, that was an example he gave me. I just remember it for that reason. 
So, you know, so Omar, are you okay for time? Can I ask a couple more? Yeah, I got a couple more minutes, yeah. Okay, so I wanted to, I wanted to ask you about, a lot of us know you, of course, from your book, uh, The Rise and Fall of the Salafi Dao. I just wanted to read a couple of quotes, and I just mm -hmm. wanted sort of to ask where you think things are now. You say, quote, We believed with our very being that this was going to be the answer to the world's problems. End of mm -hmm. quote. Another quote, you say, The Salafi Dawah had given us something to live for, work for, and, if necessary, die for. And the last quote you have, which is really, I mean, almost brought me to tears, was, quote, It was very tough coming back to the real world after living the last decade in a bubble because you felt like such a fool for not having lived in the real world and for not having prepared yourself for life's legitimate challenges, end of quote. I mean, I really, that, I really feel that. Uh, I really feel yeah. that. And I wanted, I wanted to, to ask you, I mean, the, the quotes are self-explanatory, but I wanted to ask you, if, if somebody's listening to this and they're younger, they're passionate about Islam, um, how can they not go down that way where they lose 10 years of their life but what, what advice would you give them now to sort of build on that passion in a constructive way? I would say don't let religion become a hummer. Don't let it become an intoxicant upon you, right? Just like you shouldn't let love become an intoxicant upon you. Be rational in your faith. Seek the middle path. Don't be extreme. And don't break away from the from the constructive norms of society. When I say constructive norms, I mean learning a trade or going to college or saving money or you know working to get married and uh, you know building a good life for yourself, being a good son, being a good daughter, being a fam good family member, and then being a good husband or wife. Um, don't let religious extremism take you away from that goal where you have to drop out of society and study deen all day or you have to make hijra to a Muslim country to be a good Muslim or you have to go and do jihad to be a, a, a good Muslim. I think all of these concepts uh, that I was influenced by as a young person are things that will not bring you success in this life will bring hardship upon yourself and hardship upon your families. We know that young people seek adventure, seek excitement. Often these are wrapped up in sexual tension and frustration as it's, you know, people growing up in a hypersexualized society and it's maybe difficult to get married. With all these things, just try to keep your eyes on the middle path and um, on moderation and, and uh, make um, friendship with those that are on a constructive path as well. Uh, that would be my advice. Very good, very good advice. Last question I have for you, Omar. Mm -hmm. uh, and I hope, you know, this is so good. I mean, I have so many other things I want to ask. I hope you'd allow us at some point in the future to have a, a part two. But inshallah. The, inshallah, the last question is, you, you speak a lot about in the book and in elsewhere, you speak a lot about the uh, the fact that the the immigrant community or the wealthy part of American Muslim community has ignored the converts, has ignored the inner cities. At one point you were saying you talk to a well-known person and they're like, you know, that's just not my demographic. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, right. And I felt bad when I read read that because I was asking myself, well, you know, I'm only 14 to 15 miles away from downtown DC. What am I doing? Mm-hmm. So what advice would you give me personally, as somebody like me in the, in this area? Uh, look, I mean, I am a son of immigrants, but I'm also very American as well. I mean, I grew up here, schooled my whole life. Um, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm, I, that's part of my identity. But how would you, how, how would I be able to mitigate the, that bias that I, I've inherited? I think it's very difficult and it's a very, it's a very long discussion in and of itself. We could do a whole, whole episode on it, but I think it's nuanced. I think in terms of the African-American Muslim community, I think you've seen stagnation turned into loss. In other words, the African-American Muslim community is pretty much in a free fall. People tout these numbers, but you know, if you look at these major cities that are hubs for African-American migration, and the, the four largest hubs from African-American migration are, are um, Atlanta, Houston, Dallas, and PG County, Maryland. And these are the four hubs. Look at the state of, of African-American Islam in these places. You're talking about small misagid, fledgling misagid. You're talking about very uh, cl- closed misagid. You're talking about uh, n- not a healthy uh, uh, not a healthy situation. Then you look at the, the traditional hubs. Brooklyn and Harlem. They used to call Harlem Mecca in the Bedford-Stuyvesant neighborhood of Brooklyn, Medina. Um, and you look because of gentrification, the community, those communities are under extreme pressure. Imam Siraj Wahaj told me personally that eighty percent of his congregation is gone due to gentrification. Wow. You um, uh, you look at the heartland of these large African American cities: Chicago, my hometown of St. Louis, Detroit. Cleveland, you know, same types of situation. So whatever more established and non-African-American Muslim communities can do to to, uh, to aid those fledgling African-American congregations in their metros, that would be most beneficial because you may be looking at a situation and at this rate, you are looking at a situation where in 10, 20, 25 years, um, there will be no African-American misogyny uh, in these communities. Now, when you talk about non-African-American converts, you're talking about white converts, you're talking about something very different and unique uh, that, you know, has its own set of issues that, uh, um, you know, that there's this own, own sociology. And, and, and I got to be honest with you, the post 9-11 white converts, there's, you know, obviously some great and beautiful people in that mix, but there's, it, it seems that some rather extreme and nutty white people are attracted to Islam. You know, you can be a progressive activist and and uh, be a boring white person. All of a sudden, you're an intersectional Muslim feminist hijabi. Or all of a sudden, you're uh, you know you're an exotic minority. Uh, and then you have the other ones that just left uh, joining the right. So, and dealing with that segment is very challenging and very difficult. Means people coming from difficult family relationships, and and then they seek out the misogynists. So there's no easy solution to this. And Latino Dawa is growing. All of them have their own unique challenges and benefits. And uh, I couldn't really uh, sum it all up in just a few minutes. No, fair enough. It is. It's a big question. I, I just I wanted yeah. to get just your feedback for personal right. reasons because I feel right. I I should be doing more. 
Uh, well, I will tell you this though, like me moving to a new city in the Dallas Fort Worth area, um, in St. Louis, I'm very comfortable with the message because I'm around people I've known since I was a teenager. Uh, I just don't like coming around down here because as a white convert, people don't know you, they don't trust you, they look at you funny. Uh, and you know, I have a bad, you know, I don't have, I won't say I have a bad time like I did when I was younger, but I also have a low tolerance and, you know, I, I don't really have time for stupid questions or to be questioned <laughs> by people who don't know me. And, you know, I may have to do that old Ike Turner, Iceberg Slim backhand to him. And, you know, and, and so, uh, you know, I mean. Well, thank yeah. you for tolerating my questions, Omar. I really appreciate right. it. <laughs> You're most welcome. Yes, all right, I think I think that's a good place to stop, and um, and uh, I'll, I'll all all of the things that you've mentioned, I'm gonna do my best to do the research, get them all in the in the notes to the episode. If I'm stuck on anything, I'll definitely reach out to you. Uh-huh.